here's your host, Evan Shepard. Hello, everyone, and I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Race Rad Podcast. And in today's podcast episode, we're going to be talking about returns on investment. But before we get into this episode, as I'm sure you can tell by all my newly updated titles, this is an investing podcast. Um, A little bit about myself. I'm 20 years old. I'm a junior at one of the University of California colleges. Um, and I plan in the future to be a financial planner and eventually open up my own firm so that I can help all of the people that I've come in contact with during this uh, podcast and anybody else looking to uh, really, really uh, begin on their journey to achieving financial success. So if you're interested in that, make sure you subscribe to the podcast um, and make sure if you also have the time. I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe to the podcast, uh, rate it five stars, and leave an awesome review. Those are the things that are important to Apple, Spotify, and all the different platforms that we're on, and that's what really helps the podcast grow and spread the information on this podcast. Another thing that helps uh, spread information on this podcast would be sharing it with somebody who you feel uh, needs to hear it or would take an interest on it. Um, So I would really appreciate that as well. And then obviously I have to disclose this. Everything I say here is not financial advice. Um, It is solely my own opinion. And if you want to receive financial advice, um, then you need to either do your own research and find out what works best for you, or you need to consult somebody who is a certified financial advisor. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about return on investment. So what exactly do I mean by that? Well, return on investment is basically the percentage amount that you would profit year over year on the amount of capital you contributed towards your investment. For example, if you put $100 into a you know brokerage stock market account um, and you made a 10% return that year, then the next year you should find yourself with $110. And the year after that, if you make 10% on $110, then you should find yourself with $121, right? So return on investment is, is we're going to be focusing today on that percentage return, why it is probably the most essential thing when it comes to your investing, and what types of things you can do um, to try to give yourself the highest percentage rate of return that you can, but also doing it in a way that doesn't expose you to severe risk, um, because that's another factor that is going to really affect uh, your financial success. So I just wanted to give you, uh, start this uh, this episode off, I just wanted to give you some, some average details about what you can expect um, as far as rate of return, okay? So if you are part of my younger audience, you are... Um, that 18 to 25 year old, which makes up um, group, which makes up about uh, 50% of my audience, um, you can afford to be a little bit more aggressive in your investments, right? Um, you don't have any huge uh, responsibilities right now. You don't have any huge, um, you know, payments or you know, unexpected things typically happening in your life at this moment in time, um, generally. So when when you are investing, you can afford and you have the time to be in growth companies, right? Um, You can decide that you want to be all in on QQQ. Now, that's not something that I would necessarily recommend or think that is smart, right? QQQ, for those of you that doesn't know, is the NASDAQ 100 ETF in the same way that SPY is the S&P 500 ETF. Um, If you wanted to own a portion of the big tech companies right now, Apple, 
Facebook, Amazon, um, Google, and Tesla, right? And you wanted exposure to a lot of those companies that have seen great returns within the past couple years, um, then that could be something that you use in your investment portfolio. Whereas somebody who is older, um, more specifically, um, based on the podcast analytics, we don't have any too many people, um, you know, over the age of 50 listening to this podcast. But usually as you start getting older, then you want to reduce that kind of risk, right? Somebody who's 50 years old, um, you know, having a 30, 40, 50% drawdown um, during a market correction or a market crash has huge implications on their possible future, right? They're getting closer to retirement. Um, They've done the majority of their growth in their portfolio. And now to them, it's more important to not try to necessarily grow their return on investment, but rather find the safest way to still be making money but not necessarily doing in a way that puts them at a severe risk, right? Because if you're younger and you decide to go in on QQQ and then Tesla gets cut in half and it pulls QQQ down with it, then you're going to be exposed to some some somewhat severe drawdown where somebody who is uh, looking into their 50s and 60s can't necessarily, like a 30 to 40% drawdown and having that much exposure to a growth company can have significant implications on what their retirement is going to look like. So typically the younger people like myself and like half the podcast listeners, um, you're going to be more focused on companies that are growing. People that are older are basically going to be focusing on things that will uh, give them more stability because they're getting closer to retirement. Um, So that's going to be things like they might start dabbling in fixed income mutual funds, annuities, uh, things that might weaken their rate of return, but actually uh, stabilize things. Um, but I, I, I think it's something that is important to find stability, but I also think that when you expose yourself to things that don't necessarily generate as high of a rate of return, you're actually taking on more risks because there's not as much upside. Um, so to just spew out some data, um, the S and P 500 over the course of the last 80 years or so has returned about 10% on average. So, you know, some years like this year, I believe it's up 17 or 18%. Some years it might be down 3%. Some years it might be up 4%. Some years it's up 30%. It just really depends what is going on in the world during that time. But typically on average, over the course of time, you can expect the S and P 500 to return 10%. And the reason for that is, is that the S and P 500 is the basically the best index um, in the entire world um, because you are exposed to the 500 greatest companies in the world. Typically, these are going to be American companies because the American companies are the ones that are generating the most revenue and the most profits. Um, And you get to own, by owning the um, S&P 500 ETF like SPY, you are owning basically a fraction of every single one of the top 500 companies in the world, right? So typically, that is kind of the standard that people have for investing, right? So the role of things like mutual funds and hedge funds and all of these crazy, um, not crazy, but more advanced uh, strategy uh, capital groups, uh, like a hedge fund, their goal is to try to beat the S&P 500. And the same thing for a mutual fund. These are institutions uh, with professional traders and, and you know highly developed algorithms that usually, usually focus on high net worth individuals to give them their money. And in exchange, they are basically um, 
actively more actively managing their money right uh the role of a hedge fund is that when uh basically there's a market correction there's a there's the thinking that if you uh, have your money in a hedge fund, well, the hedge fund is going to protect you from downside risk because they hedge, right? So if you see a market drop of, you know, 40%, like we did in February and March of this year, maybe a hedge fund's drawdown is only 20%. And let's say we have an explosive growth year in 2021, where the market's up 25%. Um, maybe a hedge fund allocated their portfolio better, and they got 30% returns. Um, so that's essentially the idea and the goal behind hedge funds and mutual funds is to basically um, get other people to give them money and in exchange, they reduce the risk, but they also try to maximize the upside. Um, but chances are, if you're listening to this podcast, um, you're not somebody who fits into that category of high net worth individuals. You're most likely somebody who um, either has a financial planner or a financial advisor who's managing their assets for them and giving them suggestions, or you're somebody that has taken on the responsibility of managing it yourself. Um, and it, obviously, all of this information is going to depend on what kind of age range you're in. But I want to emphasize the importance of trying to maximize your rate of return and not being so focused on market downside. And the reason for that is, historically, over time, Every single market crash has never stayed there. It always bounces. It always goes higher. And as long as the world economy is continuing to grow its business and it's continuing to grow its profits, which it will, um, you know, and I, I would not be willing to bet that there's any sort of change in that, um, that you can expect that the market will always recover from those crashes, right? Now, those things are not easy to stomach, right? It's very, very hard. Um, even for myself, I'm, I'm being 20 years old, um, seeing my long portfolio draw down in March to about 35% was not an easy thing to stomach, right? And the biggest mistake that a lot of people make and the biggest hindrance that they have on their actual financial, financial success is staring into a CNBC, uh, Jim Cramer fast money, or, uh, you know, listening to people uh, basically on TV saying that the world is coming to an end. Um, and then they take that on and they go, oh my God, the world's coming to an end. I have to sell out of everything. And as a result of that, they basically sell everything that they own for a loss. Um, now they have less capital that they had uh, to begin with. And then they miss all of the upside because they're so afraid that the world is going to end and they can't commit to themselves and overcome the idea that they were probably actually wrong for doing that. Um, so basically, your goal is to maximize your rate of return. And if you're not somebody who is necessarily super financially educated or completely understands the markets, nobody completely understands the markets. But if you're not somebody who's really familiar with what's going on in the world, you don't like to keep up with it, you're not the kind of person who checks your long-term portfolio um, very often. That's probably a very good sign for your future, by the way, um, that you're somebody who doesn't really pay attention to the boom and bust cycles of a market. But um, you also are missing out on the idea behind limiting your downside, right? So basically, your job as an investor is to find the way to maximize your upside and limit your downside. That's basically rule number one of investing. Warren Buffett famously said, 
Rule number one is to never lose money. Rule number two is to never forget rule number one, right? Your job as, as an investor is to focus on trying to not lose money, right? And that doesn't mean sell out of your positions if you're in a market crash, right? Um, but your uh, the second job that you have is to try to maximize your rate of returns. So I'm just going to give you some examples about what you can do to maximize your rate of returns and the effects that it can have on it, okay? Because the reality is um, the best thing for most people in their lifetime is going to be Number one, probably just buying and holding the S&P 500 ETF. It's going to be the easiest investment they can ever make, and it's probably going to be the most consistent investment that they ever make. Um, And the second thing that they can do if they don't necessarily only want to own the S&P 500 ETF is to own companies that, number one, you think has a significant purpose in the world. Um, Number two, shows that it is consistently profitable and is consistently growing. And number three, that the balance sheet and the financials behind the company are strong. So it's not just about investing in the companies you like, right? You can like Tesla all you want right now, but if Tesla gets cut in half, are you going to like it very much? No, you should probably check what's going on behind the scenes of things. Um, But I wanted to show you the power of having a good rate of return uh, on your capital and the significance that it has down the line. So... Typically, I would estimate it depends. Everybody's um, childhood situation is different. Some people don't look and look start start. Some people start looking to invest at eighteen, like I did. Some people start looking at twenty five once they're settled out of college. Some people start looking at thirty or thirty five if they went on to get advanced degrees. Um, that's going to be different for everybody, and it's never too late to start. The only downside of starting later is that you are facing. Uh, two dilemmas. You have less time and you have to contribute more money, but it doesn't make it impossible and it doesn't mean that you can't become a millionaire or whatever financial goal that you have. It's totally possible. It's just going to take a lot more work than somebody who's my age, okay? So I wanted to give you guys some examples real quick because, um, you know, there's a lot of people in the world right now who make a lot of excuses um, when it comes to their investing in their career. Um, you know, people that are more than willing and are able to find money to purchase new cars or the new Xbox or a new purse, um, but can never find the money to put some money away in an investment portfolio. I know things are very hard right now. I'm not criticizing the people that are going through that hardship at all, but I'm more importantly talking to the people that are somewhat financially stable, yet still decide not to contribute Um, certain amounts of money to their portfolio every single month on a consistent basis. And I want to run some numbers by you. So basically, I have a calculator set up here right now that focuses on the potential uh, target and the potential amount your account would have had you contributed $200 a month, right? $200 a month, I feel for a grown adult, depending on your financial circumstance, obviously, um, $200 is not an unreasonable number. Uh, for some people that are uh, working low-income jobs, that's obviously going to be a lot more difficult for people. But you know, if you listen to Dave Ramsey, you've also seen people that made less than fifty thousand dollars a year for their entire life, yet found a way to become a multimillionaire. Um, they just have to either be a lot more disciplined with their finances, or they need to find a way to increase their income. But two hundred dollars, I don't feel like that's an unreasonable ask for investing. Um, so right now I have the calculator set up $200 a month for 40 years. Okay. 
So if you can do $200 a month for 40 years um, at the average rate of return of 10%, which you're typically going to get if you invest in the S&P 500 ETF, um, you're going to be looking at about $1,060,000, okay? So um, that is going to be something that is basically if you're 25 years old and you're already stressing out because you feel like you're behind on investing, no problem. You could have a million dollars in the bank for just $200 a month at a 10% rate of return. You up that to uh, $300 per month. You change that to $1.6 million. You get where I'm going with this, right? The, these kinds of differences are the differences between uh, keeping up with the Joneses, buying luxury things, buying crap you don't need, and actually setting yourself up for a significantly well-off financial future, okay? Um, you know, the difference between two and $300 a month is not going out to eat twice as less each month. Um, the difference is driving a used Honda Accord instead of a brand new Toyota Camry, right? Those things are adjustments that you can make and you can find within your life if you actually want that kind of adjustment. Um, the second one I have set up is if you maximize your rate of return. Um, as I mentioned, rate of return is going to be probably the most important thing that you will have when it comes to your financial portfolio. Because if you can maximize your rate of return over the course of 40 years and you allow that money to compound, um, basically the way that compound interest works is your money starts to go parabolic within the last decade or so that you have in your accounts and you see significant upside because now you have more money to work with you have higher percentage returns and you have um you know basically a larger amount to compound so we're going to go back to this $200 at 40 uh $200 a month uh, for 40 years, and this time we're going to do a 15% rate of return, okay? Now, this is something that's not easy, right? I don't expect people that don't really understand financial markets but understand the importance of putting money in a 401k or a Roth IRA, those people are going to be well off if they just do that and they put it in SPY or they put it in their favorite companies and they find a way to make 10% a year, right? Those people are going to be very well off. I don't expect people that aren't necessarily really into markets and that are more focused on, okay, I know I need to do this for retirement to make more than 10% a year. But if you're somebody who's a little bit more skillful, a little bit more knowledgeable, um, knows how to more actively manage um, your portfolio, then there can be um, you know higher rates of return in the same way that there can be lower rates of return, right? People that are um, not financially educated are usually really into day trading. That's a perfect way to basically um, for 99% of people to never actually retire because they don't know what they're doing. Um, and I, I really, I really mean that by the way, um, just day trading is just a really, really poor idea because it involves usually only opening one position and basically gambling on that day that it's going to go up or down, uh, based on what you see on, uh, two to three minute intervals. I think it's a really dumb idea, but what I don't think is a dumb idea are people that are more aware about the markets and they sort of look at things from a six, uh, you know, two months to six months to a year time horizon for a company. And I think somebody that has the knowledge and is up to speed with what is going on in the current world and the market can actually make more than 10% returns. Um, obviously, this isn't going to be for everybody, uh, especially if you're somebody that doesn't really know about markets. Um, this is probably not going to be the best option for you, but I do know there are people out there who like to swing trade or they like to um, basically, um, you know, play companies that they see see having a significant turnaround 
or having significant growth, um, people can uh, find a way to make 15% returns a year. So in this figure right here, $200 a month uh, for 40 years at 15%. Um, mind you, at 10%, it was $1,060,000. In this one, it's going to be about $4.27 So just having that rate of return of 5% more per year and compounded makes a ginormous difference. And if we also punch in the second figure, which was $300 a month instead of 200, 40 years at 15%, uh, I believe the figure at 10% was about 1.6 million. Uh, the one when it is at 15% is going to be 6.4 million. So as you can tell, rate of return is going to be uh, essential to ensuring that you um, are able to, it's a, it's a huge factor and probably the most important factor of when it comes to your financial success because having a higher rate of return compounded over time is going to have a significant impact. Um, for those of you that don't know, not so much anymore because the company has grown to a massive size, but back in the day, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, those guys were averaging about 50% returns in the 80s when they had significantly less money. Um, when you have a significant amount of money, you really move markets when you um, when you are trying to place orders, and it makes it extremely more difficult to um, get a high rate of return because you have to be extremely patient with when it comes to entering and exiting positions and really just trying to manage the money behind that kind of thing. Um, but uh, as you can tell, rate of return is going to be essential. Now, mind you, 15% rate of return doesn't necessarily, it's not impossible for buy and hold. In fact, I think it's very possible. I think if you were to do buy and hold and you didn't, and you had a little bit of spy, but you also bought and hold a lot of the companies that you believed were upcoming, that you thought had uh, really good financial statements, it's totally possible that with the combination of things, right? Like somebody out there bought Apple back in 2008. Somebody out there bought Amazon in 2000. Somebody out there bought Shopify in 2016. Somebody this year bought Zoom at 70, right? There are a lot of um, hints, I guess, um, that people experience in their own life. They have knowledge in different areas, right? If you are somebody that works in IT then, or cybersecurity or uh, coding, then you are going to know about the companies that are killing it right now before most investors on Wall Street will. Um, if you are somebody that works in um, retail, you're going to know about the next up-and-coming store that everybody is going to drool over. If you work in marketing, you're going to know that the trade desk is creating a lot of um, unique widgets that are going to totally change web design. Everybody has a specific edge in the markets, and it usually comes from where their information is. And that's really why I believe, um, or at least what I do, I hold the majority of my long-term portfolio in the S&P 500 ETF because I know it's going to pretty much over the course of history will net you about a 10% rate of return on average. But I also think there are companies out there that are not recognized yet by Wall Street and they're not loaded up yet by institutions that even retail investors like ourselves can have significant edges for. Um, one of them that's mine um, that I never ever plan to sh uh, sell is Disney, right? So I own a good chunk of Disney for two reasons. What do I like about the company? I think Disney owns a place in every child's heart. 
And obviously, Disney had an awesome week the last week, by the way. Felt really good. Um, but I think Disney just owns a, a piece of every child's heart. Every every child, uh, even my parents, um, me, and probably future generations, just grow up on Disney, right? You watch those movies. They have all the best kids' movies. Um, if you're fortunate enough, you're able to go to Disneyland or Disney World, and you get to watch that kind of stuff come to life. Um, that's a reason that I think Disney is never going anywhere. It's just because it's it's a staple of childhood in the Western world. Um, second reason, though, um, was that back in uh, 2019, um, I thought Disney was going to get more into some streaming stuff. Uh, they had acquired Hulu. They were thinking about starting ESPN+. Plus. Um, obviously, Disney Plus was on the horizon. Um, and I thought that had had a lot of potential because who wouldn't want to stream all of the all the basically stream the things that they reminisced about about childhood so i invested in disney back in 2019 obviously it's starting to pay off their numbers are fantastic right now there are so many people on board and they expect by 2024 to have 40 million more subscribers than netflix has and i really think when you combine uh, you know that Disney owns ABC, ESPN. Uh, they're going to surpass what's going on with Netflix. I think they are going to take the edge in the streaming wars over Netflix, um, specifically because Netflix uh, was kind of like a Google of streaming, right? Like it was just a database that these um, these companies would put their shows on, and in return they'd get paid for it. Then they said, "Wait a minute, why are we using a middleman like Netflix when we can build our own platforms?" And I think that's exactly what's going on with Disney and why they're going to take an edge over it. So I really bought into Disney, thinking that Disney was going to be the new Netflix, and that bet is paying off for me very well right now. Um, and I just think things like that, like you notice things like that, that are going to give you an advantage. And those are reasons I think to invest in companies outside of the S and P 500. Obviously, Disney is an S and P 500 company. It is a um, Dow Jones company, but it's also a company that um, I want to own more of because I think that it has a lot of potential. Okay, so I hope this episode was somewhat interesting for you guys. I hope it was really insightful. I think I did a really good job of explaining the importance behind return on investment, how you can you how you can use your own. Um, you know, edges in, in your knowledge in the real world to increase your rate of returns outside of the S&P 500. Um, but it's also really important that I reiterate that you're not investing in companies that have significant um, significant unknowns to their potential, right? I invested in Disney because I don't think it's going anywhere. Uh, if you listen to a couple episodes, I invested in Rocket Mortgage because their balance sheet is fantastic. Uh, it's way too cheap, but I also see them all the time when I'm trying to watch golf tournaments. And when I think of a mortgage, and I think anybody who watches sports, when they think of a mortgage, they're going to think of Rocket Mortgage. So all the people that are growing up right now watching sports and stuff, I think when they go to look for mortgages, they're not going to go to a you know a dude that's a broker. They're going to go online to a website that's going to give them a quote and then qualify them within three minutes without having to talk to anybody. So I hope this episode was interesting. If it was, make sure you subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and leave an awesome review, something you liked about the episode, maybe even some criticism. Totally open to that. You guys can also follow me on Instagram at the Race Rat Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to another kick-ass episode of the Race Rat Podcast. Make sure to leave an awesome review and follow us on social media if you enjoyed. Now get off your phone because it's time to work.